Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Today we have on the show Eran Shirazi, the founder of EasySend, a platform that helps companies build customer interactions uh, using drag and drop interfaces with no coding required. EasySend has raised around 71 million to date with notable investors such as Oak, HC, Vertex, Intel Capital and Hanako Ventures. Eran, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So if I were to explain your business to a five-year-old, can I say that EasySend basically turns paper forms into online form or is there more to it? I guess that's it. Only thing I'll say is that sometimes we don't even need the paper. It's just helping you take something that you want to do, you're thinking about doing and just make it a reality using a simple tool that just enables you to go real quick and build everything you need. Let's strip away the 71.5 million that you raised and go back in time. Mm-hmm. Walk me through your early thought process when you were sitting with your co-founders on how you identified the pain point of your customers. How did you know that this is an opportunity that exists? Any frameworks, research methodologies that you use that created this you know, insight on building the company? I think for us, we actually, we've been a bit lucky and I think that we were actually able to detect a real pain in an actual company that we saw that it's not working well. So my two co-founders were actually working for an insurance company, which ended up to be our first customers. The thing was that they were in sales and uh, also doing some things related to customer service. And they just saw a lot of pain communicating with the end user Trying to, for example, do a simple transaction would require a fax document to be sent. And when the organization tried to shift to digital, they just saw how hard it is. They were working with a, an external vendor that just had a team of developers and tried to come up with a very clean specification of what they need to do. But there were a lot of iterations costing a lot of money and the entire process seemed very inefficient. So the first step was just understanding that something is wrong in the actual place where they worked. And I, I kind of joined as the tech angle to build something together with them. So this was the first step. The next step was kind of like discovering that this is actually a bigger opportunity and not something we see in a specific market or a specific company. So for that, honestly, it was just a lot of hard work. We went to interview a lot of potential customers. We went to conferences worldwide. And soon enough, we we were very sure with the feeling that this problem is global and there's not a really good solution at this point. That's what we felt. That's an amazing way to look at it, especially that you had the customer from day one and it was a problem for them. How did you establish communication? Was it the same way that you currently sell to other prospective customers or your sales motion has changed? Well, at first, when you just get started, you know, everything is much less structured. You kind of want to leverage your connections, your network, trying to get people from different industries that have the relevant connections. And this type of product is usually aimed for very large enterprises. So 
you have to find the right person either within IT or someone with a strong business need. So it's just using your personal network and personal relations and I don't know, charm <laughs> and trying to get an understanding whether it's interesting for them and whether it's valid. And as a company goes, this really changes, right? So the process becomes much less of a discovery process of trying to understand what actually is missing here and what do we need to build here to something that's more scalable and structured. So you have to have consistency across your team. You have to have written playbooks of what they need to say about certain stuff and how to scale it. So different people get different roles at different parts of the pipeline. There are people that are more expert in getting the lead and there are people that are more expert in doing the last stages of the deal. There are the technical guys that uh, kind of like the sales engineering team that do all the demos and the proof of concepts. So they all work together to make the same thing that was done in, in I think, a lot of uncertainty at first. So now that we have more certainty, that then the challenge becomes scale. Excellent. I read in a few publications that your first target segment was traditional banking, and then you quickly saw the same problem in other industries and you moved to adjacent markets. How did you decide that banking was the first market you wanted to disrupt? So we did start from banking and also insurance. That was our two main verticals. So insurance was easy. It's just because uh, my two co-founders were working for an insurance company, and then we levered their network to expand into a few other big insurance companies. At first in Israel, where we, we started, and then uh, in Europe, and then in the States, and uh, later on in Australia and Japan. But the concept remained the same. And for banking, well, it was kind of like perceived as a still very close industry and the same connections were applicable for them. And also we found out that a lot of the pain points are similar. So it was kind of like more natural for us to expand. We saw that the same ideas, the same pitch works. We had to slightly understand better the use cases. What should we present as initial use cases to use the platform for? But many of the things were similar across these two industries. You know, how did you overcome the challenge of selling to banks when you know that they have legacy systems or they have certain compliance or regulations that would sometimes hinder third-party apps to connect to them? Has that been a challenge to you? Yes, it has. I mean, as a small company, you really have to kind of, first of all, make sure that you're providing real value and major value because... Like you're saying, a bank is not going to take a risk of working with a small startup company if there's not also a, a big upside. So if they're not going to gain a lot from it, they're not going to take the risk. And I think something that also played a good role is, uh, so first of all, I'm coming with a lot of experience in cybersecurity and uh, uh, secure application design. So this definitely helped and I was able to talk to the security teams in there and explain the different aspects of the product. And we did build a very secure architecture from the get-go to make sure we are compliant with these types of organizations. And I think one thing that's also critical is just being able to gain their trust and kind of like give them the feeling that, you know, they are our first customers. So they are going to be 
building this together with us and they'll have a lot of influence on what's going to be built there. And that's a big opportunity for them as well. I think for the organization and also for specific people, you know, being a part of building something big and that's actually going to be providing major value to our, or an organization is also good and beneficial for the person working with you. So they can kind of like step up in the organization and present it to management. So that's also a big uh, upside. Excellent. Let's dive a little bit into your first hundred. So I know you're an enterprise company, so a hundred customers is a big number, but let's focus on your first hundred thousand dollars, let's say. What sort of strategies have you implemented in your early days to reach that milestone? First of all, I think our approach was a bit maybe different than other startups, just because first of all, we started the first two years of the company, we were actually bootstrapping. So the revenue stream that we got was actually also an enabler to grow the team and kind of like we were building our company based on that. So that was a really critical part on what we did. And only after two years, we shifted to a more traditional fundraising based model. And I think for enterprise customers, you have to realize that every sale is going to be major also in terms of revenue. So for example, I think probably our three or four first customers already got us to hundred K annually, but it's going to be a long sales cycle. You're going to have to meet them a lot of time. You're going to have to meet the business owners. You're going to have to meet the technical owners. You're going to have to meet the security owners. And as a part of the process, you're probably going to end up also getting a decision in really high ranking officers like the CIO, even sometimes the CEO. So these things are just going to take time and you have to be patient and persistent, but getting your first trust from the first customers is going to be critical if you're aiming for the enterprise market. And what did you learn from your first hundred thousand and how did your strategy change now when you're pitching to new clients? These were the stages where we were kind of like defining what our product is doing. So at first we were kind of like more using our platform internally, offering it as a professional services to do fast work for the customers. And then we got feedback uh, from the customers that, you know, Hey, we, we actually, we want to use this tool ourselves. And our focus shifted on building something that empowers our customer to build everything on their own. So I think the first few steps actually changed our entire thinking and product strategy together with our customers. And today the focus is bringing more and more power to the person operating the platform, but making it as intuitive and simple to use as possible. And it's a very big challenge because you're building something that's very complicated. Like, for example, when you join a new insurance policy, we have to ask you like uh, hundreds of questions. And there's also all kinds of logic that are incorporated in which questions need to be asked for which person. But eventually to build this process, we want to offer our platform as a simple tool that allows you to place these fields, to build this logic without even being a technical person or, or without coding knowledge. So that's a big challenge, but I think we're doing something very special in here. And I think we're in a place where now 
our product can really be used by someone that's not technical and build very complex stuff that look amazing. Uh, and it, it was hard to, to get there. <laughs> I believe so. It's always hard when you're starting, you're pivoting, customers give you feedback. And the biggest challenge as a startup founder is, are you going to run out of money? Because as you said, your enterprise sales cycle is long. So if you don't hit your targets quickly, you might run out of money. And that's a big challenge. What was your North Star metric back then? And when did you know that if we hit that number or this target, then we go and raise more money? So... I think something that helped us along the way. So like I told you at first, we started bootstrapping for the first two years. And then we were really responsible with managing our budget just because we didn't have any other option. You know, well, anything uh, we earned, we can then spend on salaries and building our product. So we were very balanced. So I think doing the transition to actually being a company that's based on VC money and growing faster was a process for us. And we had to kind of adapt our strategy to actually be, take more risks and be more aware of uh, the need to grow fast. So that was our, our kind of like first challenge. We were, I think in some sense, we even needed to switch from a break even state of mind to spending state of mind. And I think we've always been on the responsible side, trying to make sure that we grow our company as revenue grows. And I think like, you know, today when we manage it, it's more or less um, standard. So we have our goals and uh, depending on the way, you know, we hit our goals or don't hit our goals, we can plan ahead. We always keep track of, you know, assuming that everything stays the same. How much time do we have to run? and make sure that we are resilient for market changes. So we'll have time to react. And one final thing. So you, you were kind of like asking, when's a good time to go and get the next round? I think as a startup company, there are so many things that are gonna affect your ability to fundraise, even things that are not directly related with your company, like market trends. And you have to kind of like spot the opportunity and it's not going to be in a way that you're not always going to be able to fundraise exactly when you want it. So you have to be always in touch with VCs. You have to keep good connections with them and just be alert for an opportunity. And I think that's something that worked very well for us. I can tell you that, for example, Oak that led our Series B, we actually started building the relationship with them two years before we closed the round. So I think that's something very wise to do. Like try to start to build trust relationship. You also, when you work with a VC, you also need to make sure that they are the right partner for you, not just for money. You're going to work with these people on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, and you just have to make sure that it's a good match for everyone. So these relationships really matter. Yeah, this is a great segue to my next question because you raised 16 million in 2020 and then after one year, another huge round of 55 million. You have built enough trust and relationship with your VCs to be able to trust you with a bigger round the, the following year. And I believe you're growing at, at a rapid pace. But if I was a, an entrepreneur and I want to maximize my chances, you mentioned building trust and relationship over a period of time. 
What sort of tactics have you deployed to build that relationship? How did the relationship start? How did you follow up? Were there just updates? Did you, you know, engage with them with certain activities? Any tactical advice to future entrepreneurs? That's a great question. So I think, first of all, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially when they're just getting started, sometimes they're a bit intimidated and seeing a VC like something that can be scary or intimidating. And in the end of the day, you have to think about it as talking to you and startups. That's their jobs. That's what they want to do. That's what they're doing all day long. And they want to talk to you as much as you want to talk to them, right? It's not necessarily going to be a good fit for them, but it's also not necessarily going to be a good fit for you. So generally speaking, you're going to be able to talk to almost any VC that you want and get their feedback. And from that point on, yeah, I think it's really important. We were also kind of like staying in touch via emails once a quarter. When there are interesting updates, we used to send them over email, maybe do a short short phone call to kind of catch up once a while. And when you feel like the timing is right and you're kind of like preparing for the next round, then... Yeah, that's a good time to start taking it to the next uh, level and trying to do a lot of uh, sessions over a short period of time. And in the end, end of the day, uh, fundraising can also be a very stressful and fun and uh, hard period where you're going to get a lot of funds saying no. And that's fine. That's a, a normal process. But in the end of the day, once you get one, two, three funds on board, and you feel comfortable that they are good partners, then it's just going to work. And you have to be persistent and you have to stay confident. I know it just sounds like a generic stuff, but it, it's crucial for the process. Excellent advice. Erin, entrepreneurs' anxiety is a topic that a lot of people avoid. However, a lot of entrepreneurs suffer from it. What measures have you taken to keep anxiety in, in a cage? That's a great question. And honestly... As an entrepreneur leading a company, being uh, you know in 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 a, in a role that affects all your employees and many of your customers rely on you, and you're becoming business critical for a lot of larger companies, so it's stressful. And you realize really quickly that there's always something to do. Work will never end. So I think. At some point, you have to develop a mechanism where you have to be able to live in peace when you stop for a few hours or as you want to plan your, your schedule but and not think about it. You have to develop. It's just something you just build it. But at some point, you have to be able to just this, like take a step back, think about your family, think about yourself. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to maintain this stress level for years, right? And that's going to affect the company eventually. So you have to have your own personal life, your own family. Otherwise, it's just not going to work, I think. Great uh, advice. Is there a childhood event that has influenced you to become an entrepreneur? Mm, I wouldn't say a childhood event, but I was uh, like growing up as a computer geek. So <laughs> I always had a passion for building stuff from when I was 10 years old. I started coding my first my first computer programs. And uh, I always had a passion to build stuff with my hands. 
And I think it kind of led me there eventually. This was uh, what right for me. So I, I think I, I always knew that this is something I want to do. And uh, now the opportunity was right. And <laughs> Great. <laughs> if you were on a deserted island, you cannot leave, and you were to take with you three books and two TV series, what would you choose? <laughs> <laughs> wow, a hard question. Can I take my desktop, my laptop? <laughs> Do I have Wi-Fi there? <laughs> Honestly, I'm not sure. Honestly. <laughs> what three books do you recommend or have you read that have influenced you or even two if you don't have three books? So, I mean, there's a lot of books uh, that help you kind of like build your approach when managing your own company. I don't know. I don't have like specific examples that I want to share at this point. So, okay, no problem. One last question: What is next for EasySend? I think EasySend is like the the main the main challenge for us, and I think that's the the main thing that makes me very passionate about this company and process is we're actually building something that you know it's not like a known market or a known type of product. So we're actually kind of like working together with the market on building something that's completely new and kind of working with our customers and building market trends that this is something that you actually need. So I can tell you that it's really hard and it's always an exploratory process together with partners, customers, a lot of influencers. And I think we really have a big opportunity on, on leading this market. And that's what we are aiming to do. And I think that's what's really exciting for me, for, for being EasySend and being part of the leading team. And it's just an amazing process. Aaron, thank you for being part of our show. We wish you the best of luck with your venture. This was an amazing episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.